You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Folks, we made it. Here we go. Season five of Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs podcast. Uh, This will be a season like the other ones where we get a whole bunch of different kinds of guests on the show. We talk about leadership anxiety, soul health, emotional health, uh, what makes you tick. And most of all, what we're interested in doing is noticing what's going on under the surface in you and then what's going on under the surface in people that you lead, whether it's a team, organization, a family, uh, whatever it is. Every guest, no matter what they come on to talk about, at the end of the episode, I subject them to my gauntlet of anxiety questions. And this season, I've got a fresh set of questions, some old and some new, so you can tune in for that. And boy, oh boy, are we kicking off this season with a huge uh, bang. Uh, Dr. Henry Cloud is my guest today. And, uh, you know, Henry's just simply one of those people that needs no introduction. I've had the privilege of meeting Henry and spending some time with him. And boy, he just absolutely lives up to his reputation. What can I say about Henry? He is an unpretentious genius, is how I would describe Henry Cloud. In many ways, he is absolutely the godfather of the kind of work that many of us are interested in doing, where he really, way ahead of his time in the in the 80s when he started his work, was fascinated in the intersection of psychology and theology to really help people figure out when they get stuck and how they change. I had a wide-ranging interview with Henry. I got schooled on a couple of things. It was a, a delightful experience for me. I hope you enjoy it as well. So Henry, obviously you have been uh, pouring into and coaching and leading leaders for decades, but we're definitely in a, a new season. And even though we're recording this well into the whole COVID situation, it does yeah. feel to me at least like we're in a new era of COVID. We're no longer as much in this lockdown. We're now kind of in a, I don't know if it's stage two or three, but what's, what are some of the unique pressures that you're seeing that leaders are facing now that maybe they weren't facing even two months ago? Well, specifically, you know, if you're meeting in the church context, mainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one of the big pressures is, I think in the beginning, they had a lot of pressure. I saw, I saw this in business leaders as well. The, when we realized, okay, everything is different, right? Everything is locked down. Everything is different. There was an immediate pressure for, um, let's kind of call it somewhere between survival and sustainability. You know, things things have always been like they've been, and they have certain patterns, they have certain revenue patterns, they have certain staffing patterns, they have certain getting together patterns, and all this. So all that gets blown up. And so in the in the in the immediacy of it all, early on, I think they had to focus on, okay. How do we preserve cash? How do we preserve our connections with our people? How do we? And there was this, let's not let the ship sink. You know, we're taking on water. But there was this attitude at that time. Attitude's the wrong word. There was just this kind of, uh, um, this is what we all thought. Let's put it that way. That, okay, we're on pause. (laughs) And then we're just kind of waiting. And then we'll get back to it. Right? So so sort of halftime or something. Well, this hasn't turned into a pause. And so now I think the big pressures that they're feeling are how do we how do we almost re reinvent? How do we reform? How do we do 
what it is we're called to do when we can't do it the way we used to do it. And I think, I think redefining that future, you know, and shifting sand is that's the big pressure. And and I think another one, and and I'll just say this because I've heard it so many times recently is with pastors is they're really worried about, and and I'm going to say this specifically also. So each individual pastor can feel better because they'll think it's just them a lot of times. But they're, everybody is noticing that they're, what do you guys call them? Parishioners, sheep, uh, congregants? Yeah, congregants, sure. Yeah. Um, Hopefully something kind. Something kind. It depends on the day, right? Yeah. Um, they're, they're getting church Zoom service fatigue. And so their numbers of people um, watching and this is happening to everybody, guys. So, I mean, I, and I've talked to some of the some of the leaders of the biggest kind of networks of churches. Is they're just saying, you know, p- people are tired of it, and they're not tuning in as much. Some do, obviously, but that's kind of a big pressure. I think they're feeling right now. And so, you know, how do they morph to? You know, I never thought about it this way, but here's how: as a as a psychologist, I would look at it. The two big factors I think they have to worry about are two things that load on what we call cohesion. You know, the stickiness. How do you keep a church together? Yeah, because you used to have this cohesion built around certain activities and this that, and the other that you can't do anymore. And so, cohesion really comes from. And this is what I would want them thinking about. Cohesion really comes from two factors. It comes from, number one, that there are clear expectations that are known by everybody of what am I supposed to be doing here? Like when I go to church, I'm a congregant. I know the expectations. I show up, I sit in my seat, I sing songs, I share with people. You know, I might maybe I go to a small group or whatever. And so they got to kind of know what to expect and how they're supposed to be participating and how they're supposed to be behaving. Okay. That keeps a group together. If they don't know that, then they, they start to, you know, flitter apart. The second big factor is that there has to be an experienced need for the group. So the big task there, I think for pastors is the pastor and the, the staff they feel the need for everybody to come, right? You got to hold it together. But how do you transfer that need to come onto the congregant? And you only do that by having what I call transformational experiences, which means whatever need state I'm in as a congregant, let's say I'm lonely, okay? Well, I do whatever the church is offering, and now I've had an experience for 30 minutes or something and my state has changed. It's been transformed from lonely to now I feel connected. Or I was confused and now I have some clarity. I didn't have a lot of hope and now I have some hope. So you create a perceived need for the group by having people experience something when you are touching them that makes them need to come back next week instead of, oh, I ought to tune in. It's, oh, I need to tune in. And that, if you can focus on those two things, I think it answers a lot of that quandary. Yeah, I think a lot of what you're talking about, Henry, is um, just the the impact that long-term ambiguity is having on leaders. Mm-hmm. If, if I'm hearing what you're saying, it's like we, we thought by now, I, I remember naively when we all shut down in March, I was already starting to talk to our worship leader about the grand reopening that we were going to, it's going to be bigger than Easter. Sure. And that's that's so naive now. 
now I'm thinking, I think we're probably in two years. Well, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't even call it naive. I would call it um, – because naive kind of implies that somebody should have known better, right? You know, if you were, uh, if you weren't so simple-minded, you would have known this. Which I don't. We've never been here before. Yeah. You know, I think it would maybe be we were all ignorant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you're right. That's how people were looking at it. Like this is gonna we're gonna lock this thing down for a couple of weeks, wipe this thing out, and we'll be back up and running. Well, that didn't happen. Yeah, I, I think we're probably in for a couple of years of significant change. How do you coach leaders? Well, I'm glad you know because nobody else knows. So <laughs> I, I can mark my calendar. <laughs> well, let's let's see if I actually was uh, naive in that one. <laughs> yeah, but how do you coach leaders when they're looking down the barrel of long-term ambiguity? When they have to lead their people, whether it's church leaders or business leaders, how do you coach them to be well in the face of long-term unknown? Well, I think that it's. Um, it's important to isolate a few of the a few of the dynamics that undergird first of all our thriving as humans but secondly that that undergird making anything really stable okay and you have to get into how humans are constructed to be able to do that and so if you take a few uh, I'm going to name three or four things here you know Jesus said uh, there's two types of people Right. And I think there's two types of organizations as well in the same regard. He said that the wise, the wise one built their house on the rock and then COVID comes and they're still standing after after it's over. COVID meaning the winds and the rains and the storms and all that, he said. And then there's the fool that builds it on sand. And so a lot of times we'll hear that passage and go, well, I'm building my house on the rock. I'm building, I'm, I'm building my house on Jesus. Right. And you have all this kind of like Christianese. But past that sentence, nobody can tell you what that means. Oh, I got faith in the Lord, right? Well, that's not what the passage says. Yeah. What the passage says is, I'll tell you what a wise person is like. A wise person is the one who hears my words and puts them into practice. That person will be like the man who built his house on a rock. Okay. So when we're looking at the winds and the rains and the storms and all of this and what it actually does, one of the ways I think to think about this is what does it do to the thriving and the functioning of a person in an organization and which of Jesus's words speak specifically to that, that we need to practice. And I'll give you like three or four kind of, if you do a a factor analysis, you know, where they all kind of lump in into a handful of factors. Number one is that humans are sustained, nourished, created, and thrive. Number one, the foundation, if you're going to build a human, the, the slab of the house, the foundation of the house is a sense of connectedness with the relationship. We know this from the moment a baby is born, they're in hell until they're connected with. They don't grow if they're not connected with. Their brain sizes are smaller. Their immune systems don't function. It goes all the way to octogenarians in a nursing home. Connection, human connection, and obviously God connection, but the way he expressed this in the doctrine of the church is this body has got to be knitted together, every supporting ligament, he said, and that connectedness creates strength and thriving, all right? 
Number two, after you have a frame of, or a slab of a foundation of a house, you build a frame. Well, every human and every life and every organization has got to have some sort of a frame that holds it together. Now, basically, there's a lot that goes into that, but simply the frames of our lives are our operating traffic patterns, right? How we, how we frame life. God built this into the universe. You have circadian rhythms in your brain that operate according to frames, night and day. You work during the day, you sleep at night. You have your personal life and your professional life. That's all mixed up now. <laughs> you got days, it turns into weeks, it turns into months. Then you go through your day and you have patterns and you have routines. I go to the office, I see people in the hall. Every 10 o'clock, we have our team, every meeting or every day at 10, we have our team meeting. We have our conference calls at this time. We gather together, all of that, okay? Your routines. Number three, Another thing, once you get in the house and you got a frame, then you do stuff, right? Well, what do we do inside the house? We put our hands to things that we can control and you go in the kitchen and you make a cake. Well, you actually can control what's happening and you see a result. So humans thrive by having a sense of I'm able to control something that has an outcome. All right. That's why the Bible talks about over and over and over, over and over and over. You're a, I'm paraphrasing, you're a control freak. And it commands you to be a control freak. But a control freak of one person, yourself, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We're to have control of stuff. And we're not to have control of the universe, control of other people, control of all this stuff. But we're, we're supposed to be a cause and effect and feel that every day. All right? Fourth thing is, we want that to work out well, so I don't bake a cake. I go and do something that I actually have the ability to do and the talents and the strengths to do that I can see my gifts at work, right? I don't bake cakes. I might write an article. Well, at the end, I go, well, that was good. How's the cake? It sucks. Well, I didn't make it. because I. So we use our gifts. All right. So now think about this. The pandemic has just like a big storm in most people's lives blown all that away. You don't have the connection you used to have. You don't see the people in the halls. You don't see your best friend at work. You don't have lunch and go out, you know, with, with somebody at the office. You don't gather in your small groups like you used to. Your connections are annihilated. Number two, your routines and the structure of the way you built your life is annihilated. Number three, now we can't control anything anymore. I used to have a lot of choices. I'm going to lunch here. I'm going to have a meeting on Thursday. I'm going to have a, we're going to have a, an outreach. No, no, you're not. You don't have those choices anymore. So now we don't have control of anything we feel. And then fourthly, in all that losses, where am I going to use my gifts? Okay. So if you look at those factors, you, you know, all this goes to ambiguity. We can take the ambiguity out of it if we proactively start to proactively load on those factors, okay, we may not know how, where, when, all that, I don't know, all the pieces of how we're going to connect, but however we can connect in this next month, we're going to proactively drive connection, okay? Maybe we, maybe we teach six people um, at a time or, or divide the church into, you know, small groups of six that live nearby you and get in your backyard 
and, you know, put up a screen and we're going to do church, not in one building with a thousand people. We do a thousand people in a bunch of different backyards. Okay, there, there you go. But we're driving connection. Most of the CEOs I talk to, they have a one hour phone call every morning with their executive team. And they start in by checking, how are you doing? They're driving connection. Okay. I've got a pastor friend in Cincinnati. I called him and said, how's it going? He said, it's incredible. It's the best time we've ever had. I said, how? He said, I, he said, I didn't know what I was going to do. He said, I got 15 elders. So I assigned each elder to be the pastor of 30 families. And each one of those elders is taking care of 30 families and organizing those people to take care of each other. So the hows are ambiguous, but the factors are not. And that's what you have to remember. So then you go into how can I establish some routines and some patterns when my old ones are gone? And then how can I define for each person? We don't have control of when the vaccine is coming or not, what the government is doing, whether people are being safe or not. But what do you have control of? Because we can surrender all that to God. What do you have control of each day? Okay. How are we going to feed 5,000 people? I don't know. But what do you have? Well, I got three fish and I got five, you know a few loaves of bread. All right. We'll bring those. All right. See, there are things that we still have control of. And then there, if we really, really think about how can I use my gift today and start to focus on the gift and what expression of that is available and begin to do that. I was, talk, I was talking to one pastor, says, I don't have anybody to preach to. And I said, well, go outside and preach to a tree. Just use, use your gifts. And all of a sudden people started gathering on the sidewalk and listening to him. Right? It's absurd. But what I mean is, You've got to be doing what you're good at yeah, somewhere yeah. and expressing that. Now, if we focus on those things, I think that takes, uh, doesn't take the ambiguity out of the external context, but what it does is it takes the ambiguity about, out about what I'm supposed to be doing. And the other big thing is this. This is huge. Do not confuse the essence of who your church is, what your mission is, with the way that you've always done it. And people do this all the time. Their mission slowly morphs into the methods. All right, let me, let me give you an example of this. Everybody's heard this one. If the horse and buggy companies had realized we're not in the horse and buggy business, we're in the people moving business, then when the trains came along and the cars and the airplanes, they would have just changed how they do what they always do. They move people, but they didn't do that, okay? If the record companies had realized we're not in the record business, we're getting music to people's ears business, then they would have done what Steve Jobs did. Yeah. If Borders Bookstores had realized we're not in the bookstore business, we're, we're in the getting content in front of people's eyes or ears business, they would have done what Amazon and, and Barnes & Noble, I think, sustained that better in the beginning than they did. So what is the essence of your ministry? Yeah. So you're not in the gather in a building and on Sundays and sing songs and, and, and have a little class and then disperse everybody business. That's not what you do. That's like an old theater chain. What you do is you're either reaching the lost or you're spiritually forming people or you're gathering the homeless or whatever your mission is. Don't confuse it with the tactics that you used to do. And that will give you life. And God says over and over, behold, I am doing a new thing. But he never says, 
Behold, I'm doing a new gospel, or I'm doing a new set of values, or I'm doing a new set of, you know, what I care about deep in my heart. Never says that. He does the same thing, but he does it in different ways throughout history. And that's our big challenge right now. Yeah, Henry, I I think it's such a gift you just gave us. Like, I think it it can be pretty um, easy to feel stuck and overwhelmed, but the way you uh, were able to detangle it into these four fundamental human needs that any any human, whether you're a leader or whoever's listening, can then begin to practice, you know, the need for connection. It's really helpful. Oh, God. Oh, if you look at that, I'll give you a simple example of this. Take the, take the one about self-control, okay? We can go into nursing homes and you take all these, all these indicators, you know, and, and measurements of, of thriving, like cognitive functioning and, you know, their energy levels and sleep, all, all this, however you measure how, how well they're doing when they're, you know, you're 85 years old. And all we do is begin to analyze how many more choices can we give them every day? Well, what do you mean? Well, why don't we let them choose what color napkins they want? Why don't we let them choose between two or three entrees? At lunch, why don't we let them choose where they get to sit? Why don't we let them choose from from this activity? And you start to build in choice where they have a sense of control over their lives again. All the health indicators begin to go up. Mm. Yeah, that's profound. I mean, why do you think? Why do you think there's such an emphasis throughout the scriptures on freedom? You know, Galatians five. Yes, ask the normal Christian, why did Jesus die? Oh, because he loves me. Well. Yeah, but the Bible says it is for freedom that Christ has died in Galatians 5. But I thought it was about love. It is about love. But you can't love if you don't have freedom. You're a slave. So how can people be loving and healthy if they don't have the very thing that God created them to have in the garden, which they lost because they exercised their freedom in irresponsible ways? So what we got to do is return choice and freedom to people where they have a sense of control. Hmm. And you see all these indicators of life, you know, begin to go back up. And I mean, if you think about this, it's the serenity prayer, right? The, the extreme form of somebody out of control is the addict. And what, what's the first thing they do? They get them back in control, the courage to change the things I can, you know, the, the, uh, the wisdom or, or the, the ability to surrender things I can't change, change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, that's pretty powerful in restoring health, along with connection and the other factors. It's really, it's really interesting. As I'm listening to your talk, two things are going to my mind. I, I used to work on a ranch where teenagers would come and live there for a few years if they'd gotten in trouble with the law or their parents had gotten overwhelmed. And I think one of the great weaknesses of our model then was how little choice we gave these kids. So when they went back from the ranch, they had spent two or three years with no autonomy, no ability to make their own decision. Right. It's also, um, the, the other word that comes to mind is prison. When you're talking about a, a senior citizen home, but this is the same issue when prisoners get out of prison is they've not had the opportunity to make decisions. And Right. You know, that those first 30 days, right, when they get out is needing a guide just to help them navigate a decision-based life. That's right. See, I, okay, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to just illustrate a point. And you may be second or third exception that I've had in decades. 
All right. I like being an exception. All right. You may be. It may be. You may be. Okay. What what was what's Joshua's most famous line? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yeah. Now I think we might have even talked about this when, when we were on that trip. Okay, so that if you ask anybody, what did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What's the sentence he says right before that? You know, Henry, I am now letting you down live on a podcast because I am a Bible nerd and I don't know what the sentence is. Okay, that's my point. Ah. That's why I said I'm going to put you on the spot because I don't want to embarrass you, but this is a Bible nerd. How long have you been <laughs> in the church? Oh, goodness me, 30 years. 30 years. How many times has a Bible nerd in 30 years heard somebody say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's such a strong statement and we rally around it, right? Yeah. Can't even tell. We never hear the sentence before it. And we do this all the time in the scriptures. We have these little phrases, but we take them out of their context. Sure. Here's what he says right before that. If it's disagreeable to you to serve the Lord, then serve whom you will. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. See, that is choice, freedom, self-control, the invitation of today I set before you two paths, one that leads to death, one that leads to life. I want you created in my image. I'm paraphrasing the whole Bible here, right? Sure. I want you to exercise the image of freedom of choice that I do every day in a holy way instead of having no control over anything. I mean, look at the parable of the talents. Talk about delegating autonomy and freedom and control to people. He said, look, I'm going to give you give you five and give you two and give you one. Um, figure out what to do with these, invest these. I'm going on a long journey. I'll be back. You tell me how you did Look at Adam and Eve. Look, I gave you this garden. I gave you a brain. I gave you all this stuff. Here's the outcome. So do it and rule it. See ya. Well, what we do a lot of times is the opposite. We want to take freedom and choice away from people so we don't see them mature. It's the biggest, it's it's kind of the biggest parenting mistake we see is over control of kids. And then like you're saying, you, you know, you keep them in jail for 18 years and then you release them into society. And well, what, what the heck do you expect? You know? Well, yeah. I, I think with parents nowadays, like it, it just feels like no one's allowed to raise a boring child anymore. Like we all have to be exceptional, right? We all have to be world changers. There's tremendous pressure on the parent and the kid. Yeah. And the parent wants to kind of be the lever that drives everything. And, um, Good luck. You're going to yeah. be busy for, you know, 60, 70 more years. If yeah. you, I remember one time, um, this, this is way off topic. Um, never mind. I, 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 yeah, let's do it. Well, I, I'll give you an example. We were, um, when my girls became teenagers, so they're now they're, they're, uh, they're 18 and 19. But when they were 12 and 13, I sat them down and said, look, you're about to be teenagers and you're going to want to have a lot of freedom and do a bunch of stuff. And let me tell you how this works. I have zero, zero, zero interest in controlling your freedom. Zero. Zero. I do not want to control you. I want you to have 100% freedom. You're in charge. Okay? Because I don't want to be in control of you. I want you to have something called self-control. 
I want you to be in control of you. All right. And so here's how it works. There's a formula. Freedom equals responsibility equals love. And those three are always going to be equal. So you're going to have as much freedom as you are acting responsibly with. And the way we measure that is love. Are you doing anything destructive to yourself or to someone else? And those will always be equal. No matter what you do with them, they're going to be equal. I will enforce that. So if you have this amount of freedom, but you act less amount of responsibility with it, well, we're going to make those equal. So I'm going to pull the freedom down to equal the responsibility that you're using. Responsibility goes up, freedom goes back up, but you're in charge. Okay, so that, that's kind of the law that we set down and operated according to that. That's what I think the Bible teaches. It's also what all the psychiatric research will validate. It's also what all the managerial research will validate for leadership. So roll the clock forward. Olivia's senior year, we went on a spring break trip. We had been skiing. We're sitting in the airport in Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. and she had taken her best friend with her. So we're delayed. It's a Sunday night. We're sitting there. It's about 8 o'clock. And Olivia says, Dad, can, can Vanessa spend the night when we get up to L.A.? And I said, Olivia, why are you asking me such a stupid question? And she goes, well, what do you mean? I said, why are you asking me that? <laughs> she goes, well, because it's a school night. We have to go to school tomorrow. And I thought maybe, you know, I said, Olivia, you know how I'm going to answer that question. Oh, yeah, Dad, I know. It's a school night. I said, no. I said, how am I going to answer the question? How am I going to think about the question? And she goes, uh, the formula? I said, absolutely. I said, Olivia, think about this. When's the last time I ever said anything to you about what time you need to go to bed or doing your homework or this? I think it was in about the third grade because you've got a 4.4 average. You've been 100% responsible with all of your school. I've never had to worry about it. I've never talked to you about this. And my hunch is that if you had a big exam tomorrow or Vanessa did, that y'all wouldn't be thinking about having a sleepover, but it's not going to affect anything because you're 100% responsible. Stop bringing these stupid questions to me. You figure it out. And Vanessa, her friend, looks at me and says, uh, will you talk to my parents? <laughs> but this, this, this putting people, giving them the freedom to exercise the gifts that God has given them with appropriate limits and boundaries, you know, that's how we get thrivers. And I think that's a big deal right now for leaders. One of the things that I see with pastors um, that I think is an important emphasis now, you know, when you could gather them all into a big pen on Sunday and be in control of the activities and, you know, kind of have a service and this and the other, then you really don't, you don't need a lot from the kids. You know, you don't need them making a lot of decisions. You don't need them using their gifts a lot. But now it's like that pastor I talked about in Cincinnati. You've got to be asking yourself, how, this can't be pastor centric as much as it was. And the, and by, by the way, the Bible never talks about that in the New Testament. There aren't like the professional ministers that were the, those were the Levites and they were only a few of the people. Yeah, pastor's not a title in the Bible. No, the gifts were distributed in the body. Yeah. And so if I were a pastor now, one of the things I would be thinking about is I am not the minister, (laughs) right? I am the shepherd of ministers, people in the body with whom or within whom gifts reside to be leading 
and healing this flock. And I would be calling everybody into their giftedness to be able to build the congregation horizontally and deep and wide and where there's there's 80,000 ways of ministering to each other that I don't even know about because everybody's using their gifts. And and I would really be trying to figure out ways to drive it downward. Yeah. I, I, you know, Henry, I, I, I knew when you were coming. I mean, just, just, just one little example, the body, the head, the Jesus, Jesus is the head, right? You got a body. All right. Right now I'm looking at Steve. You guys can't, can't see him because this is audio. I'm, I'm looking at Steve. He's leaning on his, on his fist and his face, you know, he's got his, his head propped up here. He's leaning on it. I guarantee you, Steve, before I said that, you weren't even aware you were doing that. Actually, now it's my turn to contradict you. I am unfortunately freakishly aware of my body language because I'm awkwardly staring at myself right now. And in a, in a season of COVID that tells us not to touch our face, I'm aware that I haven't changed that habit one bit. So it's, it's problematic. All right. Bad example, but if I said, what are you doing with your right foot right that's now? A, that's you, you yep. My point is the body is designed to be able to do a lot of stuff that your prefrontal cortex never even thinks about. It's delegated those functions down. You don't know. You're not running your heart right now. Your body's right. right. And so I'm saying that, that one of the things the head is supposed to do is to be building the body so everybody's using their gifts and things are going on. What I love for pastors and for business leaders to experience is when they find out about, oh my gosh, do you know what the sales group just started last month? And it's this incredible thing they got going. They didn't even know about it. That's I think in COVID, <laughs> you have control of less than you had. Well, one of the yeah. things you do have control of is calling your body to its calling. You do have control of that. You yeah, can act, message activating that. people into ministry. A, a friend of mine, um, I love what he, he says, their church has become Cheesecake Factory. They're just trying to put everything on the menu to see what sticks as they try to deploy people <laughs> into ministry. And I, I think that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good model. Well, you know, that, there, there's something really important in that, I think, as well, because you, you talked about the ambiguity. You know, in the old days, we kind of, we sort of knew what six months from now looked like. Right. Right. So you plan and you just, then, then it's all about execution. So you just execute well and you'll do well because we know what it looks like. Send out a thousand flyers. We know we get X amount of people. Well, okay. Everybody make sure you send the flyers. Have you done the colors right? Did you do the font? And so we're, we're managing people towards execution. Well, now we don't know what the future looks like. So, so we don't even know what to execute. So you really don't do that. What you have to do now is exactly what you said is you, and there's a bunch of terms out there that you hear like this, but you fail fast. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're trying a lot of little bitty things and then something pops yeah, and then you run to where the life is and you pour more gas on that, but give your, give your people opportunity and freedom and encouragement to, as Jim Collins says, you fire a lot of bullets, not cannonballs. You don't launch yeah. some big things. You don't know what you're doing, right? But we shoot a lot of little bullets. And then if they hit something, then we start to load up the ammo and maybe ultimately get to a cannonball. Yeah, I think that's good. But before we move on, I, I do, I would like to ask you about churches that heal. I know it's one of your newer initiatives. 
And, uh, you know, every church leader I talk to wants more resources to equip them and their congregation in good mental health resources. I think that's my experience with Churches That Heal is that's exactly what it is. How would you describe it for someone who's not familiar with it? Um, well, you know, it came about contextually a few years ago. We're hearing so much more about the, quote, mental health crisis. So um, we, were, we were getting a lot of calls from churches, you know, how do we go address the mental health crisis in America? Yeah. Right. In our neighborhoods and communities. That was one channel. The other channel of, of inquiries we were getting was for pastors. You know, pastors are hurting. Pastors sometimes are falling. Pastors are burning out. They're leaving the ministry there. Yeah. So, so what do we have for hurting pastors? And, um, so that's where churches that heal came from. And what I tried to do was, um, was to construct a, a, a sort of, it's, it's really, it truly is plug and play. It is a program for churches that's very, very inexpensive, you know, costs a couple hundred bucks or something. Yeah, 250 a year or something. Yeah. It's, it's a wealth of resources for what you get for sure. Yeah. And so we divided it up into, into three pieces. And number one is for the pastor and the pastoral staff. So what we did was I brought a, a pastoral team from a big church in um, and I did a retreat for them and we filmed it. And we did a retreat on the main issues that cause pain and suffering and lack of thriving and issues in with pastors and their wives and families. Right. And so that's section one and they can they can watch it individually. It's all streamable. They can watch it individually or they can do it as teams or they can do it over time, but it's geared at healing the pastor. Okay. The second big thing we wanted to do was help the church outreach to the community about, you know, emotional, call them mental health issues, which is kind of a, I'll get to that. We need to get rid of that term, but because you think of people in a rubber room, look, what are you talking about in mental health? You're talking about anxiety. You're talking about depression. You're talking about all the stuff that all of us deal yeah. with. So let's let's get this out of cuckoo's nest and put it into yeah, yeah. normalize it. We all have this. Normalize it. Yeah. yeah. So what I did was I did a half day, um, a half day seminar, half day conference in a big church in Florida. We filmed it. We opened it up to the whole city. We filmed it. And, and when you buy the package of Churches of Hill, you get that. And so you can play that on your big screen for the city. You can do it in a room on Saturday. You can, but it's a, it's, a, it's a half day about where do emotional problems come from that we all have and what's God's answer to those. But not Christianese answer. You're not going to hear the Christian formulas that Job's friends gave him. I mean, think about this. What did Job's friend say? It's like a walk through a Christian bookstore. Have more faith. You don't know the word well enough. Put the sin far away from you. Let righteousness be your guard. And God came along and said, no, no, guys, you know. You guys are idiots. Go sacrifice for your friends. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what he said. Yeah. But what does the New Testament actually say that is prescribed that are processes that heal us? 
Okay. So the content, certainly we believe in prayer and the word and all that. I'm not decrying that. But, you know, people are having anxiety attacks. They need to hear more from you than, yeah. well, just pray about it or memorize this first. So it's, it's the New Testament processes that actually heal us. Okay. And that's a big citywide or churchwide or Sunday series or wherever you put on the big screen. And then the third piece is for the small groups to actually go through all the materials over time. And so that's the individual and group healing part of it. So we got the pastors, we got the messaging and the teaching for the city or the congregation, and then we got the individual working out. Plus, there's like 50 or 65 minute training videos for you and your staff about what do you do with a person that's depressed? What do you do with a person that's addicted, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a big, big package uh, for a what I, I think it's two hundred. Yeah, I was, I was actually checking before the show. I think it's two fifty eight or something like that. It's a low number. Our church jumped right on it, um, and it's it's been just fantastic. I'll it's churchesthatheal dot com. I'll put the address in the show notes for folks. You know, not all of our listeners are church leaders, but a good chunk of them are, and and it's just it's a great resource. Well, it's also any individual can use all of it. I mean, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look and you or your small group can do it or. You know, if you've got a, uh, here's an interesting story about the power of God's ways. Um, do I have a couple of minutes for this? Yeah. Yep. And most of my work is, is with businesses pretty much, I'd say about 80% and, and big ones, you know, global entities, public companies, stuff like that. And, and in 08, the financial meltdown, um, one of my, my clients was one of the big Wall Street banks. And the CEO said to me, look, you know, at the end of 08, if everybody remembers how bad that was, he says, look, I got 10,000 brokers out there and they're all dying in a pile, much like COVID at that time. Remember, everything was yeah. hard. He says, can you do anything for them? And so I said, yeah, but I want to go understand it first. And so he put me on a plane. I flew to 20 cities, gathered, you know, probably 15 or 20 of their high performers in each each city. And I listened to them for a day and I took all that data and came back, constructed a program. Well, here's what we did. Now, the program actually, in part, was built around some of the same factors we're, we're talking about here because it's the same issues. We flew 500 branch managers in to Reunion Tower in Dallas. And I trained for two days, I trained 500 branch managers to go back into their offices, their branches, and do small groups of brokers, financial advisors, stockbrokers, put them in small groups, okay? And had them processing the kinds of issues we're talking about. Mm. Well, the CEO was bombarded with letters and emails from spouses saying, thank you for giving me my husband back. Thank you for giving my wife back and performance turning around and all of this. But the reason was that God's healing processes work when we start to implement them. So it can be done in a small group. It can be done in a business. You know, it can be done with a group of friends. And so the main thing is that It's like, you know, we were talking about where Jesus said earlier, here's another one. What phrase do you hear all the time? Well, the truth shall set you free, right? And what do we do with that? We take that verse and then we go prescribe for people. You got to get in the word. The truth will set you free. You got to memorize the scripture and all of this. And trust me, I'm all for that. Okay. That's not what the passage says. 
Steve, I'll give you another crack at it. You can redeem yourself. I'm still living in deep, profound shame and regret that I didn't have Joshua memorized. So let's, <laughs> let's see how we do this time. All right. So he says, the truth shall set you free or make you free. What is the sentence? A couple of sentences right before that. <laughs> don't, don't we don't know. We don't know, do we? Here's what it says. If you walk in my teachings, if you hold to my ways, if you put these words into practice, there's a teleological emphasis there. If you walk in these ways that I've been teaching you, then you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Okay, But in this evangelical, Western, cognitive, informational Weltanschauung that we live in, we have lost the process orientation of God's created order. You don't take a baby and give them a book on adult thriving and have them memorize it and think they're going to get there. You take them through his ways and they have to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So I'm going to go study the word and memorize the word. Okay, I'm going to memorize the word today. James 5, 16, confess your faults to one another so that you may be healed. Okay, I got it memorized. Well, now what are you going to do? Well, I got it memorized. No, what are you going to do? Why don't we go obey it? I got to pick up the phone and go to my small group or go to Starbucks with my accountability partner or whatever. And now I've got to do the processes that the Bible tells me to learn and memorize and walk in its ways. And so what Churches at Heal does is it, it helps churches provide context for those biblical processes and God's ways to be lived out. And that that's the design behind it. Yeah, really good. Yeah, thanks so much. guest I have on the show uh, willingly or otherwise endures my gauntlet of questions about anxiety. So uh, with your permission, I can tell even now the terror that you're feeling. Uh, I, I'll throw some questions at you and um, you can... It's, um, I mean, I'm, I live in California. I'm, I, I, I got to, you know, call Postmates and get them to deliver some gummies here to, to help me cope. I know. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's see how you do. You can pass or play on these. Uh, here's the first one. Uh, what types of people or types of situations do you notice generates anxiety in yourself? And I don't mean that in a way that it's their fault. I understand your responsibility, but just there's a t- certain type of character, personality character, or a certain type of situation where you know it's going to generate anxiety in you. Now, is it? Give me a context. Is this like I'm I'm standing in line at Starbucks, or somebody I'm having to work with, or a client, or an employee? What? Let, let's say that you're brought in to consult a leadership team, and there's a certain personality type that you have to do more internal work to stay connected to them than another personality type. How about that? Oh, okay. I see. It's mainly podcast hosts that ask ridiculous questions. <laughs> That's the biggest. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think the you know st- I started to say those with the one hundred percent like absence of the awareness of the other that they're so into their own but really that doesn't make me anxious it makes me more nauseated I, I think I think what makes me more anxious really if I'm if I really get into this is the 
the morally superior victim, the morally superior victim, because. Okay, great. Because, you know, the old phrase that used to be in the, the literature was the tyranny of the weak. And, and there are some people that, that so perfect the victim identity that, say you're working with an executive team or whatever, they have mastered the organization of the playing field into persecutor, victim, and rescuer. And they see themselves as morally superior to the company or the leader or whoever that's sliding them in some way. Now, think about this. They're supposed to be the wounded party here, right? But they're the ones that are perpetrating all the division and all the abuse. Yeah. And so when you when you get that and it's passive and in Christian circles, it's 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 hidden in so much sanctimonious holiness that there's a little bit of an eggshelly feeling that I'm going to say something that's going to ignite. I'm going to offend them in some way and make it not safe for them that we can't even do our work. And that gets, that gets a little anxious. Gets really weird. Yeah. Oh, that's Wow. What a fantastic answer. Yeah. Um, All right. The next one is uh, sometimes a leader can be the last to know that they're not okay. Is, is there ever a time where somebody knows you're not okay before you know? You, Henry? Yes. Oh, yeah. So who in your life knows that you're not okay before you know it? Well, number one would be Tori, my wife. I mean, she'll, <laughs> she'll just go, dude. <laughs> yeah, how does, how does she know? What are you doing that makes her know? What, how does she know? What, what signs is she looking for in you? Um, you know, I'd have to, I could call her in here and ask her actually. Um, yeah, we've got time if you want to. Let me see, uh, if I can find her here. Yeah, no problem. If she takes a moment, we can come back to the question if she'd like to join. If not, no problem. Well, I, you know, you can kind of do the, the, uh, the newlywag. I'll give my answer and then she can. There you go. I think she would just, kind of see me um well here she is yeah here's the question tori um how do you know henry's not okay before he knows he's not okay if something's got him agitated or worked up or anxious what signals is he sending oh for henry um he starts to get kind of um detached i guess yeah okay but like he doesn't he probably doesn't realize it and then I'm, you know, I'm kind of like, where are you? Hello. <laughs> um, yeah. Or just really, um, it depends what it is that he's dealing with, but sometimes he gets really quiet. I mean, same kind of thing. Like he's going into his own, his own world. And then. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Just not <laughs> oh. present to the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what I was going to say, except I was going to add, um, I don't know what the right word is, a little grumpy, like I'm less lighthearted. Yeah, you're more earnest and less playful. Um, I don't get grumpy. (laughs) No, you don't really get grumpy. I don't? No, he doesn't get grumpy. That's good. It's more, I would say more, um, more just like lost, if that makes sense. Like what I said. Yeah. Detached or just kind of like far away. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome to, okay. welcome to hang out and I'm welcome to know. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Anything, else, anything else you want to ask her? No, I think, I mean, Tori's welcome to sit in. You're both welcome to answer if you want, but yeah, well, I mean, why not? I've got three more questions, so we can. Okay. 
Our puppy ran away, so I'm a little worried about what she's doing. As long as it gets I'll go done. check. <laughs> okay, so what is that? All right, three more to go. So we do a lot of genogram work on, on uh, managing leadership anxiety. Could you name a family trait you've inherited that you think is an asset and then maybe a family trait that you think gets in the way of your well-being. So a family trait that I've inherited that's an asset yep. and one that gets in the way. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, I think you would probably be helpful to listen to. Yeah, I think that um, this one's easy. Um, I never thought about it. I really never thought about it until you you pointed it out. My father, and then my mother as well, but my father especially was a very a very creative social entrepreneur. And what I mean by that, he was always going way back to his even his his army days. He would creatively go create businesses or kind of whatever, but always always in the service of helping some way. Mm. And did that throughout. He, he used his company to do that um, and. When he retired, for example, he he didn't sell his business. He chopped it up and gave it to his employees, gave them all the equipment, gave them the trucks, gave them the everything and set them up in business for themselves. So he, he was always using his business in some way, you know, in the service of people. And I never really thought about that. But Tori comes from a similar family and the way that we have built um sort of our lives you know we don't have jobs we just we kind of what's the next fun thing we want to do and somehow it's got to pay for itself yeah. but it's got to be in in the service of a mission and, and i think I, I i remember one day she i was describing my dad she said well that's kind of what you do and i never thought about it yeah. but i think that that that's that that as well as um from both of our families were uh you know it was, it, it was a lot of philanthropy a lot of giving a lot of serving, you know, it's sort of, I grew up in the, I think one of the purest forms of, of Wesleyan Methodism. And that's the way my family lived out its faith. Yeah. That's really good. Social givings, social service. Yeah. Yeah. Is there also a trait you've inherited that you think has gotten in the way that you've had to work on? Yeah. If it's not locked down, I eat it. (laughs) Okay. Is one. Um, (laughs) That is not true. (laughs) Probably, I guess one of the biggest would be, I don't know what the right word for this is, but a little, a little hypervigilant to negative possibilities, if you will. Okay. Yeah. I'm always, you know, my, I had older parents. They were, they were, I was an accident late in life for them. And so my, my, my father grew up in the depression. And he was always aware things can go really bad. And you got to think about that. And you got to prepare for it. I think sometimes I can have an orientation a little bit of, of overcovering my downside. Yeah. Okay. You know, and if somebody, if somebody thinks, you know, the standard formula say six months of savings and liquid cash you need to have in your, in your scary fund, I'm going to have a hundred years. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. We're like, I, I, I overcover the downside. Yeah, thank you. And I have to battle that a little bit. Okay, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. All right, two to go. But here, but here's the positive side of that. Because people look at me and I've launched a thousand things and built stuff. I've, you know, 
I built a healthcare company from no money, you know, out of nothing and have done, you know, various things, which looks like, wow, you know, you'll take risks. And, and so I'm not risk averse. What I do is just make sure that the risk can't hurt me. Yeah. Okay. So the positive side of that, I think, is, you know, if you if you got enough life preservers on board, you're not really afraid to find out how fast can this boat go. But I might take more life preservers than I need and the boat not the speed yeah. it could get to if I didn't have so many damn life preservers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Um, Henry, it's it's my experience as a pastor that a lot of Christians have a gap between what they believe about God and what they experience from God. Yeah. In my case, for several years, I would say the gap was God's particular love for me. I believed it, but I struggled to experience it. Is there a gap in your faith between what you believe and what you experience? Uh, yeah. I mean, there would, I'd have to sort of pick a category and narrow it down. But why don't I use one of them that I'm most most actively pursuing right now. Great. Yeah, fantastic. I really have struggled. And, and part of this was I, I kind of was early discipled and grew up in, in a pretty strong dispensational, cessationalist kind of mindset, right? And that never, I forget the dispensational part of it, but the, the cessationalist part of it, in just from an exegetical perspective, that just made no sense to me. Zero sense. You cannot read the Bible <laughs> and think that God doesn't still do everything that's throughout all the gifts and all. I mean, you just can't read it. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to name names here, but go read your Bible that you write books about. Yeah. It just, and I would, I'd see this gap. Well, where are these? Where are these gifts and where are these miracles? And then everybody would say, well, there are people that do all that, but they're crazy, right? Right. Well, over the years, a couple of things started happening. A, it bugged me more because I got more in the scriptures. And I said, this is just not true. But then B, well, then why don't I know about it? And then C, personally feeling the hunger for not having a faith that holds to a form of godliness, but denying the power, right? And that, start, that gap really started to bug me. And so, so over the years, um, that's one of the gaps that I've, I've been more actively pursuing. And it's closing because I've just, I've seen too many miracles now, and I've seen too many, too many undeniable moves of God in, in moves of the Spirit. So the biggest gap now for me is not that he does things. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick example. This was just, just last year. In fact, I might have even sh shared this on the trip we were on. Um, I checked into a hotel speaking to a big group. One night, I was supposed to speak uh, that night and the next morning and the next night. I check into the hotel. I go to my room, and I have an internal – it wasn't an external vision – but I have this picture of a kneecap that just flashed in front of my face. And I heard the word kneecap as I'm unpacking my suitcase. I'm going, what was that? And then it kept coming, kneecap, 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 kneecap. And I'm going, God, are you talking to me? What? 
So I go speak. I'm on the stage. I hear kneecap, kneecap, kneecap. The next morning, same thing, kneecap, kneecap, kneecap. So finally, I'm speaking one more time. And from the stage, I had to say, okay, I know you guys, this could sound crazy, but there, I think there may be somebody here and there's something wrong with your kneecap. God wants me to pray for you. So I'm going to pray. And so I prayed. I said, if that's you, come up, talk to me afterwards. This lady walks up to me and she said, you were praying for me. My knee has been by. I said, your knee or your kneecap? She says, no, it's my knee. I have an ACL. I said, it's not you. <laughs> Sorry, I'll pray for you, but it's not you. This was a kneecap. I know it was a kneecap. You're a particularist. Yeah. So then this this guy walks up to me and he says, you were praying for me. I said, you have a knee? He said, yeah, I have a condition with my kneecap. And the pain has been so bad that I haven't been able to function. And I just came here on faith. And I said, I want to pray for you. Let's go into the back room. So we go into the back room and we walk in and we shut the door. And I said, sit down. I'm going to pray for you. He said, no, you don't understand. I said, what? He said, I was in my seat in so much pain, begging for God to help me. And when you said there's someone with a kneecap and I'm going to pray for you and you prayed, he said, my body filled up with electricity and look, he stood up, he reached down, he pulled off his brace, he threw it apart. He said, I'm healed. He healed me in that moment. And that's one example. Wow. wow. But the gap for me is, yeah. I don't know, there are people that kind of live that way. I mean, Google Todd White, for example. Have you ever seen him, the guy who walks through Walmart and just gets words and prays for people? And they, yeah. Why? What's that gap? Why do Why do I yeah. have this gap? And I deal with people's quandaries yeah. all the time. Why don't I? I don't know why I'm not getting eighty thousand words of knowledge all the time. I don't know why I need to fast more. I don't know. But that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a gap. I yeah, that's oh, great. Thank you. Yeah, so good. All right. The final question, Henry. You know, a lot of my work deals with uh, leadership pressure and. and clinically chronic anxiety. And we, we work on the basic idea in First John, perfect love casts out fear. And that when you're in the grip of chronic anxiety, it can be difficult to notice God's presence. I, I think that's uh, one of the signs you're in anxiety's grip is you start to believe it's all on you. So we're always interested in hearing from leaders. Uh, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? And you can answer whether it's fully loved by God, fully loved by another human. But when's a time in your life where you've just felt felt flooded with love? A time or when do I most, like on an ongoing basis? Yep. Either way. Either way is great. I think on an ongoing basis, two settings. One is with my family. You know, when I'm, um, when the four of us are together and we're really together, you know, like, in some way we actually have time and we're talking and really processing. And maybe if we've gone away for a couple of days or, or something. And the other is in, is in my small group that we, we've been in, there's in a small couples group for uh, the same group for 15 years. There's you know, just a handful of couples. And that's a place where I really, really, really do feel loved. Um, but the other, you know, the other place I was going to say that was that there's a, there is a, um, you know, there's a direct correlation between how loved we're going to feel is basically one-to-one dictated by how vulnerable we're being. I mean, you can't, you can't be like water off a duck's back. If we're not 
really, really making ourselves vulnerable and getting to our weakness and our needs and our pain, then we're not going to feel loved. I mean, you can't quench thirst if you don't own the thirst and open up to drinking, right? See, we have a deprivation model in evangelicalism, really, of you come to Christ and then you go serve and give to depletion. That's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says it's an overflow model. It's not a depletion model. Yeah. We love because he first loved us. So you've been given so much, it it goes that way. Well, the other, I, I say all this to say this, when I have, um, there have been a couple of periods in my life where, where I was in some really, really deep therapeutic experiences, where I was the most, most hurting and most vulnerable. And in both of those, um, I would have to point to both of those as, as kind of some of the moments where I felt the most loved. Yeah. And then also I'll tell you another one is back to the previous one about the gaps. I feel very loved. I, I have, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm writing a book about this right now. Um, but there have been a, I started to say a handful, it's more than a handful, but there's a, there's a period, there's periods of times in my life where God has supernaturally, undeniably, supernaturally intervened from someone else that doesn't even know me or know what's going on, contact me and say, God just told me this about you that is uncanny. And those moments where God has reached out to me like that, I feel seen. Oh, very, very loved. I'll give yeah. you a quick example. It's a longer story, but when I was a kid, um, I had a really bad experience in a public speaking scenario. It was like in the seventh or eighth grade. And and after that, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't stand it. I couldn't give a book report. I couldn't stand up in front of a group. I couldn't ask a question in class. And I just didn't do it. I was an A student. You know, I love school. But I could not do anything that involved. And I couldn't. When I say I'm not, I don't mean wouldn't. I mean, I couldn't. I almost didn't graduate high school because you had to give an oral book report in English class to get your final grade. And I said, flunk me. I'm, I, I won't go to college. I'm not doing it. She let me give it to her after school. So I went through college that way. went through graduate school that way. I was working. I was building models for all these psychological um, growth models, working with Christian organizations, all this. I would get asked to speak all the time. And I'd always say, no, I don't do that. I just don't do that. I wouldn't do it. One day, I'm in my mid-20s, I'm at the gym, a guy walks up to me in the locker room, and he says, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah, this is weird, naked, walking to the locker room. (laughs) Yeah. I said, yeah. He said, well, God just told me to tell you something. I said, I'm also a psychologist. I can make those voices go away if we, <laughs> or something. Like that. I said, he goes, look, I'm not crazy. I'm a pastor. Tell me the church. I knew the church. He said, but God just spoke to me about you. And I said, well, okay. And so we went and got coffee next door. And he said, God said to me, he said, I don't know if this is going to mean anything to you. He said, but God, I know God said this to me. He said, he told me that when you were a kid, you had a very bad experience public speaking. And since that time, you've been afraid to speak in front of people. And now he wants you to begin to speak for him. And he's going to open some doors and you are to walk through them and begin speaking for him. Now, that'd be one example. And then the next week, I got two calls. 
That be an example of one of the times I, one of the, I would say many times like that, that I have felt the most loved by God. It's by the exercise that people have of his gifts where he has spoken to me. Yes, I feel seen. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's like an amazing combination of feeling deeply seen, but also unlocked. Like you talk about that one moment and looking back now on all the speaking you've done in all the settings, all the people that have massively benefited from you. You know, you're, you're probably one of the top communicators in our world today by most people's lists. So that's, that's the other side of that, right? <laughs> and there is no way I would ever do that. I mean, I'm not talking about kind of maybe one day. I, no. Yeah. Yeah. I was off the radar. Yeah. Oh. Oh, Henry. Hey, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your heart. Um, I, I knew that, you know, there were so many different directions uh, we could go. When I, I was doing some background, of course, I've, I've read a lot of your work, but I thought, oh, I wonder how many books Henry's written. I think it's like a hundred and something. But, <laughs> but when I Googled it, uh, Google said, Henry Cloud has written at least six books. And I just laughed out loud at the, the deficiency of Google. I just knew that we could take this interview a lot of ways, but this has been, I think, a real gift. So thank you for your time, and uh, I, I just really appreciate it. Well, thank you, and thank you for your, your book. Um, I think I've already shared this with you, but such great insights, and I've enjoyed time we've had to interact. So I hope this is helpful. Oh, yeah. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.